0: And he had taken it completely apart. Why, I don't know. But he took it completely apart and he couldn't get it back together again. Now, this was pre-internet. So there were no YouTube yeah. videos or anything.
1: Yeah, he literally had to read the manual.
0: He had like 600 parts. And he's like, holy shit. I, I paid him 50 bucks to carry it out of his garage. I paid him 50 bucks. And so I, I took it back to uh, the farm. And my dad looked at it and he said, what is all this junk? And I'm like, I think there's a motorcycle in here."
1: <laughs> what is this? up, everybody. It's Armand back with another episode. Today's guest, we have Carlos Fry. He is the founder of Code Exitos, and he's founded several other companies uh, throughout e-com, logistics, IT services. He's done companies that have been venture-backed. He's worked with venture capitalists. He's done so much in the entrepreneurship space and has a ton of great experience that he shares. And we also, this is exciting because this is a first have a great conversation about motorcycles. That's the hobby he's been doing for his whole life. I myself also ride motorcycles, and it was just so much fun to have someone else to talk about riding. So, with that, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Play Hard Podcast. Work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard. It's hard when it's going bad, but it, does, it does help with. I don't know, consuming the content quicker. Uh, without further ado, Carlos, what's up? How are you doing today?
0: Hey, man! I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's another day in paradise for me, or as most of my friends here, it's it's the best day of my life. How about you?
1: It's pretty awesome, actually. I've been having a great day so far, and really excited for this conversation. Now, where are you right now? Because I know you have a couple different. You're in a new location. You have a couple different yeah. spots.
0: Yeah, uh, right now at this very minute, I'm in Ohio, uh, sort of passing through, hmm. and uh, I live a a semi-nomadic life, which maybe we can get into later. Nice. And the reason it's semi-nomadic is I have places to live, like real places to live, but uh, my wife and I spend a lot of time on the road. So uh, today you caught me while we're passing through the great state yeah. of Ohio.
1: And we'll get we'll get to the the nomadic part, but real quick, let's talk about your company. You're the founder of Code Exitos and uh, a couple right. other companies. You've had history in ecom, logistics, and IT services. Uh, you want to touch yeah. on your background for a little bit?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm an older guy, so I'm 58, and I've I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. Which 58 is, years young? Yeah. But uh, so I've backed a lot of uh, years in there. I've had a number of IT services companies, uh, network engineering, software development. Um, Two or three of the companies that we did, three actually were venture capital backed. So uh, I've done the Silicon Valley. uh, I've done that version of entrepreneurship. and I've done some bootstrapped entrepreneurship as well. Uh, Codexitos is... Uh, I guess this is what entrepreneurs do. I don't. I don't know any better. Uh, it's my retirement company. Uh, uh, so I was. Uh, I was working in Austin, Texas. Uh, it was kind of a hired gun, actually, for a VC-backed startup out of Silicon Valley, and uh, they needed me or wanted me to start a an independent operating company in Austin, Texas. So I started out in Austin, Texas, uh, 2014 or 2013, something like that. And, uh, we ramped. it was a logistics company, a logistics technology company. Uh, and we, we ran on that thing. We got it to about a hundred million in ARR, uh, within the five years that the investors wanted. And, uh, I kind of said, well, that's my, you know, that was my commitment. That's my tour of duty. Uh, I think it's a good time for me to go. They said, well, we think it's, yeah. I, I put in my time, they they agreed, uh, so we parted. And uh, I had been incubating the idea for what my last company was gonna be. And so I started Exitos with that in mind. Uh, and we're a product development company. We help entrepreneurs design, build, and launch uh, products, digital products. So uh, a lot of those are software.
1: Uh, yeah, platforms, I saw, IoT, like a, blockchain. Is it like an accelerator, or is it how does how does that work? <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great
0: question. Uh, it has aspects of an accelerator to it. Um, fundamentally, though, we're a work for hire, which means okay. entrepreneurs come to us and say, "Hey, I have this idea for a thing. I have a digital widget that I want to build, and I want you guys to build it because I'm not a tech." person and i don't want to hire a tech team early on um we do occasionally invest in companies though that we're building a product for Mm. Uh, we take minority investments um but we're not explicitly an accelerator or an incubator although i think in our future uh, that'll definitely be a piece of of what we do in an active way. But, okay. but right now, we're really a build shop. So people come to us and they say, I have this thing in hardware, I have this thing in software, and I need somebody to build it. And our clients are our clients are probably made up almost entirely of your target audience base here for the podcast, which is super cool. Um, nice. They you hear that, listener?
1: Be, Carlos is yeah, a guy. Yeah, they tend to yeah. Well, not, no, I meant the podcast
0: is nice, but uh, <laughs> we'd be happy to talk to people because we work with pre-seed to kind of a round is is where we do a lot of our work. Um, so yeah, that's what we do. We have, we have uh wild sort of unchained entrepreneurs come to us and they do a lot of arm waving and they're like, I've got this dream. I'm going to change yeah. the world and it's like this and we're like, okay, we'll build that. So that's what CodeXitos does. We're a product studio.
1: Nice. So rather than the the traditional accelerator, where you kind of take these companies under your wing, you actually go in and and build these, like what whatever, like kind of like acting as a part of their team.
0: Yeah, or sometimes entirely their team. At least in the product side, we have you know over the arc of thirty or geez, thirty five years of being an entrepreneur there's a new wave that we're seeing or up that I've identified and I call them non-technical entrepreneurs. Uh the old joke back in the 1990s uh not the 1890s by the way but the 1990s the old joke was uh, what do you call two unemployed software engineers a startup. <laughs> and that's that's how a lot of that generation of uh, startups including the ones in the valley got started. They were tech people that um decided to build their own product or their own company. Yeah. But now we now we see a lot of people who don't either they don't know how to code or they only they understand it but only at a rudimentary basis. And uh they but they they're great entrepreneurs and they want to do something in the digital world. And so yeah, they come to us and we function typically depending on what they have on their team or who they have on their team. Uh, we can take on everything from the chief technology officer role, help them architect and scope the product, um, all the way down to getting it built and executed. So, wow, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We get to uh, we get to work with a lot of really cool people. Um, it, the incubator or accelerator question, though, is I've spent my whole career building companies. And so when I think about entrepreneurship, I think about it from the standpoint of having done it myself five or six times and not from the standpoint of being a quote unquote expert consultant to entrepreneurs. Um, I don't, <laughs> I take kind of a dim view of people who've never done it but want to tell other people how they should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes me a very engaged, very hands on guy. And I just don't have enough. Um, Time, frankly, in the day to take on more than, you know, two or three active roles and companies, uh, in, in addition to my own. Right? I mean, Codex is yeah. growing. We've got a super cool team. They deserve my attention first. So, um, I'm more of a, I'm more of an active investor, or I don't invest at all.
1: Sort of. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, different, in, different model. in In your experience, what are some traits or common? I guess, themes of founders that you notice that kind of separates the successful ones from people who uh, tend to, I don't know, crash and burn, not do it? Yeah. Um, Well, I've done both. So
0: I (laughs) can't speak from, uh, yeah. uh, Being successful is better than crashing and burning. That really sucks, but it doesn't mean you're done. Yeah. Um, I think that, at least in my case, what I've learned over the years uh, I've distilled down into a couple, uh, a couple expressions. The first thing is that most entrepreneurs are too smart for their own good, mm. and what I mean by that is the people who, the people who want to create a company out of nothing, they know a lot, and sometimes they know too much. So you get too, you get too wrapped up in the right things at the wrong time so let me give you an example um i'll i'll be meeting with entrepreneurs let's say they have four or five people maybe they even have 10 people they've got a little traction they're they're hiring people um but the senior leaders are spending a lot of time looking at i don't know a big complicated project management system or an hr system or you know they're thinking about the office that they should have. Mm. And none of the, it, it's all the right stuff. They're thinking about the right things, which is my point of they're smart. Um, but this shit doesn't matter at that stage. I mean, you gotta, you just gotta get your product done and your customers engaged and you can worry about the office furniture and, you know, the benefits plan and all that other stuff later. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, that's the first thing I keep in mind is that uh, you know don't be too smart for your own good, and that I've I've fallen victim to that. You know, you you spend that's your you time say it. and your resources. You know it. You've been yeah, there. and I think the other thing I sort of stole this or co-opted from uh, I guess Thomas Edison. Um, the successful companies that I've seen and that I've been involved in are 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So I tell my own team, I've never seen an entrepreneurial company go out of business because they ran out of ideas. Like, nobody goes to a meeting and says, hell, I don't have anything new. Do you guys have any new ideas? No, no, nobody can come up with anything new to do. But it never happens. right? What's more dangerous is the flip side of, not sticking to the core promise that you're going to deliver to your customers and getting diverted off into all of these other sort of things we could do and not focusing on what you need to do. So if you want to take a minute, I can give you a really simple example. Oh, I would would love one,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. So... um, I was involved with a tech company and they were building a SaaS platform for the transportation industry. And it's it's a complicated value proposition. It's a multi uh it's not even a two-sided marketplace. It's a three-sided marketplace. It's got a lot of moving parts. There are a lot of independent personas involved. So it was a big lift. It was a lot of work to get the product built, a lot of work to go to the market, uh, go to market, get customers. And, you know, the leadership team kept getting wrapped up in how they could monetize the data that would be coming out of this platform. Now, it's theoretically, it's true that there is a value store that accumulates in a SaaS platform with the back end data. Um, but if you have zero customers, you have zero data, so you have zero value in the data. So it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. Only you. Only you know. I've got to have the egg before I have the chicken. So if I, I've got to build a platform, and I have to accumulate uh, customers and transaction data before I know that that data is worth anything to anyone, and so. That's an example of where you have these two huge opportunities in front of the entrepreneur. Getting the platform built in and of itself and launched was a huge and valuable business. And later on down the road, the data thing would probably be valuable, but you can't do them both at the same time. So you have to go back to that like, hey, I got to do my 1% inspiration and then work my butt off at 99% perspiration then I've got something because I'm never going to run out of ideas.
1: Yeah. And going back to the core promise thing you mentioned earlier, how do you know that you have the right core promise? Or how do you know that? Yeah. Like, how do you know that the the core promise is the one that's going to lead you? Is that 1% inspiration?
0: Yeah. Uh, So another expression, you do something long enough, you get a lot, you sort of boil it all down. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think that this is where I would tell the audience if you're starting a business or you're early on in your entrepreneurial venture, um, VC is a very important abbreviation to remember, but not if you equate it to venture capital, you have to equate VC to venture customers and venture customers are your first customers. So for the SaaS platform example, this is an enterprise SaaS platform. And it would be the first 10 or so customers. And the reason they're so valuable is they give you the answer that you just asked about. Like, how do I know? They'll tell you, they'll say, Hey, you know what? Your product's about 80% of what I want, but what I really want is this extra 20%. So if you can, if you can help help me get there, then I'll join up now with the 80%. You can't take everything your customer says literally or you'll be all over the map. You'll have yeah. a, you know, just a hot mess of features. But those early venture customers, are they're more precious than money in the venture capital sense because they're going to validate that business proposition that, that the entrepreneur believes in there. Um, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And I'm sure those 10 first customers are going to be like insanely helpful for shaping the actual product itself because all that feedback, all that changes, like, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a really great example.
0: Entrepreneurs should go selling, uh, they should go selling a product before they have it. okay? Okay. Like way before you have it. Um, you know, if it's complete vaporware or slideware, then you should tell people, but it's worth getting and you can get um, a handful of sit down appointments with who you think your target buyer is. All right. And this works for any business. So uh, um, those meetings, even before you start coding or sketching out your product or designing your store, if you're in a more traditional uh, entrepreneurial venture, um, go talk to customers because they're the people that are going to part with their money and they're going to bake your dream and, and your product into what they're trying to accomplish. Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big customer first guy. Yeah. You have to go get those customers.
1: And what's the difference then between smoke and mirrors versus you know you can build this product, but you're you're just trying to get like customers before you actually have it. Like, what's that balance?
0: Uh, well. That's a great question. I mean, everybody has their own sense of integrity. Yeah. it's a right? fine line. And I'm how far? Sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm not. As I get older, I try to judge less. But yeah. if you're, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example out of my own, like current events. Um. So a big part of the Code team is in Central America. Uh, we have about 100 people in Latin America that are fantastic men and women that are developers, UX, UI designers. Yeah. Do you have anyone in El Salvador? To, uh, either, not yeah. in El Salvador. Is that, is that where your family that, is that, from, that, That's
1: where, where my dad's is? from, yeah.
0: In Honduras, my mom's, my mom's Honduras. Mexican,
1: yeah. Oh, nice. Uh-huh, that's okay, uh-huh. right there, right?
0: Vecinos. Yeah, see,
1: see.
0: But I may be going to San Salvador soon, but maybe that's for yeah, another time Yeah, that's uh, a, uh, a, a tale
1: for another time.
0: Okay, but as you're probably well aware, um, cacao is a native, awesome crop in in Central America. It's, mm-hmm. it's the basis of chocolate. Who doesn't Delicious. like chocolate?
1: Yeah. Right? Delicious. Delicious.
0: Um, I happen to grow up on a farm in Ohio, and so I'm a farm boy. We didn't grow cacao because it snowed all winter long, uh, but my point is accelerating this story is I'm – my wife and I are starting an import export business to bring single grower produced native traceable cacao to us chocolaters Ooh. who are willing to pay a fair, a fair market value. Uh, we'll try to improve the benefit, you know, the lifestyle and the economic benefit to the growers in Central America. Um, this is not unique. This business, other people have done this business in coffee and cacao and other products, yeah. but oh, coffee's
1: a big one. But,
0: uh, Coffee's a big one. But, but anyhow,
1: I like it. You know,
0: I've uh, got a bunch of other reasons for it. But we haven't, we haven't done a transaction yet. But what we're in the middle of doing is talking to eight or 10 buyers in the US and just asking them, like, hey, what's important to you? If we said that all of this all of this traceability and sustainability was available in a blockchain. Would you care? And we'll take, you know, they might say, eh, I don't care. Now, CodeXitos, We have a team of 150 people that can knock out an awesome killer mobile app with blockchain traceability and everything else. We could do it. I just don't know if we should do it. I don't know if that's what's important to our buyers. Got it. So I haven't bought. Uh, my, I should say we, my wife Claudia and I, we haven't bought our first.
1: That's kilo my mom's name. Claudia, yeah, yeah, Claudia is my yeah. mom's name. Okay,
0: okay, fantastic. Uh, but we haven't bought our first kilo of of cacao. But we're going to go sit down with probable buyers and just ask the question, like, "Hey, you buy this stuff? What's important to you?" Do you want to see a picture of the family that, that grew this cacao or no? Um, do you want traceability or no? You want free samples. So we'll work out the feature set. This is all obviously a non-technical yeah. product, right? It's, a, it's an egg product, but it still has features that will validate with customers before we've grown any, before we've purchased any. Now, that's kind of the outer layer of the customer discovery process. And so over the years, I've kind of settled in on if I get 10 people to talk to me, seriously, it's worth 10 cups of coffee or 10 lunches, if that's what I have to buy. That usually gives me enough directional bearing to say, okay, I'm in the right My idea doesn't completely suck. Somebody out there, two or three of those 10 people would do it. So then you go do your first iteration of the product. And as you're getting into the product, you discover a whole lot of new things. And so then you can take those ideas back to those customers or your first generation of customers. And I like to iterate in on feature development and my first round of sales. So that's a long-winded way, basically, of telling you that... I get the customer experience feedback as soon as I can and then I iterate through it as I'm launching the product and then after the product.
1: Yeah, that's that's some fantastic insight. Yeah, this is really interesting. And the a question that comes to mind is so now that you're you've got you've talked to your customers, you've created the product mm-hmm. and now you're iterating, what mm-hmm. kind of metrics are you looking at? to gauge the success of this project to gauge whether those iterations are working or not working? Like, what are you looking at to determine that?
0: I like the question. Um, and I like the question because you're asked about metrics and when people ask about metrics, then they ask about dashboards. And then when we start Uh, talking about dashboards, I tell people we're getting too smart for our own good again.
1: uh, (laughs) so,
0: so, so here's the, here's the dashboard that we use at Codex. All right. So we're four years into the company. As I mentioned, we have about 125, 150 people. Um, I don't know. At any given time, we probably, have, I think right now we have 15 or 16 pretty big projects going simultaneously. So there's this concept of QA and metrics and how are these projects going? And is my customer happy, etc. So. Uh, our dashboard has three things on it and we, we, this is literally called internally. This is literally called the happiness report. (laughs) And that's
1: awesome. I already, I love it already. I, I don't even know what it is, but I love it already. So, so here, here are the three metrics
0: this week for project number one, this week is the team happy. Is the client happy? And is our internal finance team happy?
1: Oh <laughs> or,
0: okay. Right? Now the only the only indicator on those three categories is red, yellow, green.
1: I was going to say, how so, do you measure happiness? That's, I, I like that you boiled it down to something simple. Like you could have done even one to 10 is simple, but also it's like, all right, I'm at a three happiness. I'm at a four. happy. Like, how do you do that? Red, yellow, green is very, it's almost literally what I did in elementary school, but it, like it, I'm sure it works.
0: It works really well. And I didn't, I didn't claim to be very smart. So I like things super simple. Um, <laughs> simple is actually very hard. That's something we could talk about too, but you know, you got, you got 100 smart people and you have, let's say we just have three teams, A, B, and C, and they each have their projects. And so team A says, if I give them one to 10, team A is like, well, I think it's a seven. Team B might say, uh, the same situation, they might say independently because they're not talking together. They yeah. might say, well, this is a five. Okay, and then because we're computer engineers and we're too smart for our own good, we're entrepreneurs. One of the teams is going to say, I'm going to give this a 5.32. And I'm like, no, dude, it's not a 5.32. So you take all that crap out and you go, look, everybody understands red, yellow, green. Just give me your visceral reaction of whether it's red, yellow, green. Now, we then gather to look at this report. And guess what? The first thing we want to talk about is why is that red? Why is yeah. that, was that, that? was That was red last week and it's red this week. Ooh, we're really going to yeah, spend that's our good. time talking about that. Now, the good news is as our company's grown, and this is what entrepreneurs should be doing, as our company has grown, we have a brilliant uh, young businesswoman in charge of um, that part of our business now. And Cynthia is super smart. And she's like, okay, I want to go past red, yellow, green. She's got a weighted, she's got a lot of super smart ideas and she's getting the systems in place to get the supporting data for that. And that's valuable. But instinctively, everybody, you know, I could have described this to you in 30 seconds. And if you were a client, you're like, that's awesome. Can I look at it? And my answer is, of course, I'll show you what
1: your scores are, you know?
0: so and, and, and you it's could look at it and go
1: i'm not green i'm yellow yeah and it's one of those things that like it doesn't it kind of takes the thinking out because if you have to think about it you know when you're green and you know when you're red so like if you have to think <laughs> about if you have to you're like all right it's probably yellow and like everything else yeah it's very like instinctive and I, I like that and i also like what you said about simplicity this is something i've I I really like writing. That's another thing I like doing. And I try my best to simplify my writing as much as I can. And it's not easy. I've realized what the difference between simple and easy is simple is easy to understand. It's not easy to do or easy to execute. It's just easy to understand.
0: 100%. Well, if you're a writer and you like simple and you must adore Hemingway.
1: Uh, I I want to start getting into more like accredited authors. it's it's been more of like like the books i've been reading on writing have been like copywriting or like like the structure like r- the book writing that works how to write simply uh that mm-hmm. but as i start getting into it i'm like i really want to get into real authors and kind of like I, I i would read it as a kid but i never really understood now that i have a different lens i want to start
0: so read 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 something by hemingway first of all they're short stories is an extraordinarily simple excuse me his style was very simple declarative sentences short sentences simple words beautifully done and there was an interview with Hemingway because if you know the story about Hemingway he was an outdoorsman I know you and I share sort of the motorcycle outdoors and some other crazy things Um, but Hemingway was an outdoorsman he sort of played hard drank hard but he kept you know he kept turning out these incredible novels and short stories and he was being interviewed one time and the interviewer asked him they're like so mr hemingway how do you how do you do all this other stuff deep sea fishing and all these other crazy adventures um and still write these these fantastic novels and he said i have discipline an important thing for entrepreneurs as well i'm very disciplined in my writing He said, I start in the morning when I wake up. I go through my routine and I start writing and I write until I've written 200 words and then I'm done for the day and I go do whatever else I want. And the guy said, Wait, 200 words? That doesn't seem like much writing. And Hemingway said, No, no, no. You don't understand. It's 200 words that I'm proud of. So as a writer, you know that. You know, you can write a lot of stuff and then go back and read it and go, this is all junk. You know, like, I yeah. got to throw all this away and start over. So that was Hemingway's um, answer about your sort of simplicity and how difficult simplicity can be. Yeah. So there's a, there's a writer's story for you to uh, follow up on.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look into that. Hemingway has another one, uh, one of my favorite quotes that I honestly has helped me writing is, uh, I like to write drunk, but always edit sober. And that was uh, <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> thats an interesting true, true that. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting way of coming up with like, yeah. Sometimes you gotta get creative, but like when you're editing, you edit, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My Spanish
0: is a lot better after a few beers, but. Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I noticed that in Colombia as well when I went to visit. I was like, it was a little background. Like Spanish was my first language, but when I moved to San Diego in first grade my teachers were it went to my parents and they were like hey your kid only knows like two sentences in english um we should probably get him more on the english side so i started speaking more in english and that it, it kind of went away but whenever i immersed myself in some sort of spanish culture like when my family took a two week trip to colombia i was I got pretty good at Spanish again, but when I was drinking, it's like all, I wasn't scared to make mistakes. And I think that's the important part is sometimes you second guess your language and you're like, am I saying the right, when you're just talking, you're like, ah, I'm gonna mess yeah. up, but it's all good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's true. So, uh, Colombia's is, a great place. I'll be there in yeah. a few weeks. We're, uh, I think we're going to be opening a a development center in medellin that's the plan so we're going to do some scouting that,
1: that city i i will like the view that you get from when you're flying in through the mountains is fantastic like i've never seen it like the the forest is so cool um but this this talk you did mention a little on routines and that's a perfect segue to the next thing i want to talk about is uh okay what kind of what kind of routines and habits do you have and how have they helped you throughout your career Uh,
0: my routines change over time they change due to circumstances right um you know you get married that's a circumstance big life change you you have kids that's a big Mm. life change um my kids are all grown and gone so so my wife and i are empty nesters i guess you would say so my my routine over the last few years is i wake up early i wake up uh usually around if I haven't changed time zones, usually around 4.30, uh, wow. maybe 5, you know, 4.30 yeah. or 5. And that gives me a couple uninterrupted hours where, uh, you know, my wife, she continues to sleep, which is probably fine. Um, I meditate. I work out. Uh, I write a little bit. I journal. It's not really writing for anyone else's consumption, but it, journaling helps me. Sort of clarify my my thoughts, um, and then I'll I'll check into the news. I read two or three newspapers. I'll scan them. A couple in Latin America, a Wall Street Journal. Sort of the details probably aren't important. But I spend I try to keep that to twenty minutes because most of the news is nothing I can do anything about anyhow. Yeah. So I just want to know what the point. headlines yeah. are. Um,
1: enough to stay current, but not enough to get wrapped up in it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, uh, yeah, exactly that. You know, Stay current, be aware, um, but understand that there's no point in getting bent out of shape about something I can't control. Yeah. So my day my day starts with a couple hours like that. And I usually, I try to spend about half of my available time. Well, here's the joke that I tell people is I spend half my time with the executive team using one-on-ones. Uh, half my time uh with the as many people in the company as I can and then half my time with clients. So that's how I divide my time. <laughs> so um I'm driven by my calendar during the workday.
1: Uh for better. By words. which I mean yeah,
0: I mean I I don't mind it. Um it's just my efficiency hack. Yeah. And so like we don't People sometimes still ask, but normally, you know, our co- my calendar is public in the company. So if somebody wants half an hour of my time, all the, they don't have to send me a message and say, "Hey, can I get a meeting with you?" It's like just put it on my calendar and shoot me a quick note about what we're going to talk about, so I don't walk in cold. And then I stick to my calendar religiously. So boom, boom, boom. wow, that's awesome. that's just efficiency. Yeah, I, yeah. and so then I, I put in, you know, I try to i'm kind of a workaholic that's been a problem all my life i usually put in somewhere between eight and ten hours a day and then when i get home again or when i power down if i'm working from home uh then it's the, the time for the family and you know, a lot of the times i'll turn my phone off i I don't like turn it on silent i just turn it off um we spend time together you know dinner or whatever um, and then usually around nine o'clock it's 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 power down, read a little bit, read for half an hour to an hour, and then do it all over again
1: so, yeah that's
0: kinda of, nice that's the that's the day in life in our,
1: in a nutshell and something that I was just thinking is what? what like what are to someone who wants to be an entrepreneur but hasn't quite taken that leap yet what are some of the things that you would like them to know or like some of the stressful parts some of the some of the stuff that people don't talk about that come up on a day-to-day basis um and what what made me think of that is that's a a very awesome thing that you have office hours and you're just open to speaking with everybody it's something most leaders if not all should be doing but most of them don't. So, what what are some things that people don't tell you early on?
0: Uh, I I tell everybody who I talk to that wants to be an entrepreneur is you have to do it because you love it. So we've I've seen a couple of these waves in in the venture capital world where you know money's easy. it seems strange we're not in that phase right now it sort of ended but you know two years ago getting money was pretty easy um not not like anybody was getting it but if you're doing it for the money you're doing it for the wrong reasons you have to be driven with passion and purpose and so i always tell entrepreneurs i'm like look if all you do is make an average living and you do this the rest of your life are you going to be happy and uh it's you know it's Notable to me that sometimes I'll talk to people and I'm like, no man. I mean, I want to, I want to IPO this thing and get a 10xer out of it and make a hundred million dollars, and that's what I'm here for. And I'm like, yeah, that's going to be hard to sustain because it's just not, it's just not the right reason. If somebody's, I remember this. I was looking at business plans. This has been 20 years ago, maybe longer. Thinking about it, um, my some of my former partners and I had a venture, small little seed capital, venture capital company. And so we'd get people in our office all day long. People sit down with me and they'd pitch their business plan. And I found that one of my questions that was that was really insightful was I would ask everyone. They didn't all know that I asked this, but what are you going to do if no one gives you any money? You know, you're in here, you're telling me you're raising a million dollars or five million dollars or whatever they were raising and i would ask what are you going to do if you get nothing and it was a great litmus test there were some people that are like well you know then i'm not going to do this and i knew they weren't committed to it they weren't entrepreneurs of the stripe that i am and i remember this one guy and he was already deep into this business and uh you know he's having a rough time of it i lost track of him i don't know if he you know how successful he was in the end but when i asked him that question he looked at me never missed a beat and he said i'll take every credit card i can get i'll take every dollar i have in the bank and i'm going to spend it on this thing because it's the right thing to do and i'm totally committed to it <laughs> and i'm like on, man that's awesome so i'm not saying you have to be reckless But you have to have that level of passion before you start because you're going to get smacked on the nose a whole bunch. And if you're in it for a superficial reason, uh, it ain't going to work. It's Not going to be fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a really powerful, like, question to be asking, especially in the beginning. But it is so important. It makes me think of, so I was raised, my dad is an entrepreneur and he started a company right around the time that I was going into college. He had not been Mm -hmm. working for a year and it was, um, it was a tough time to be starting a company, but I was too young to understand what was going on. My parents kind of like, and thankfully so I guess for my aspect kind of like hid me from that. But I heard a story later um, that apparently one time they were two days away from payroll, didn't have enough and their two big clients who were supposed to give them the money to make it couldn't pay until three days or four days. And I believe like uh, either me or my brother had just gotten like scholarship money. And my dad was like, I have to use this for payroll. And then ended up like paying it back to the, to us. But it it was one of those things where like him and his found his founding partners, like they had to scrape. That wasn't the only payment they had to make. Like they had to scrape anything and everything. He was already in like debt while doing this. And I, it just made me think like, wow, I I got a lot of respect for him. I was like, I had no idea you were going through, like you guys were two days away from having to shut doors and you, you found a way. And like, that's, yeah, that's kind of what you're going to be in situations like that.
0: So I think for, for pre entrepreneurs, which I think was your question before they start, if you're thinking about, should I start? um, I mean, almost every entrepreneur I've ever met and talked to privately this is sort of a public conversation, but private conversation, everyone can relate. Everyone has a similar story where it's like it just pushed your boundaries, you know, pushed your stress meter, it pushed your fun meter into the zero range. You know, it it stressed you out. It stressed out your family. I'm sure your mom was incredibly stressed during that time as well. Um so if you haven't started your company and you're thinking about it, then that's why you have to have the passion level because you're going to hit those times. I mean, it's a shame that they happen. Very, very few people just have a cakewalk of it. So um, if you're not ready to deal with that kind of stuff in exchange for all of the great, awesome things that happen uh, when you have your own, when, you have, when you're an entrepreneur, you chart your own course. Uh, then don't start down the path because. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna step on a rake in the dark sometime. Yeah, and uh, it sucks.
1: One thing a founder really put into perspective for me is like the level of stress is different because norm- when you're working your nine to five, like you're supporting your family, but when you're a founder, you're supporting all of your employees' founders or all of your employees' families, and sometimes not yours because you have to make sure they eat first, and then you're you're kind of putting yourself back in there. Um, and I, that was like a really powerful perspective shift where I was like oh yeah, you really are responsible for a lot of different families to feed.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's an add on. i was thinking about something that doesn't get talked about. It's part of your question. Um, there's not a lot of gratitude that comes your way as a founder uh, because you eat last, you know, the, uh, and, and I had a really painful experience early on. I was really young. I had a company where, uh, similar to what you were talking about, we were, we were just getting by hand to hand to mouth. We weren't making any traction. I sat down with my team. I said, Hey, here are 10 things we have to get these 10 things done in the next 60 days, or I'm going to have to make a tough decision. And at the end of 60 days, um, you know, we had six or seven of them checked off and the other, you know, probably a couple were vague. <laughs> you know, we got to rationalize them. But but the, the truth was a, a dog wasn't going to hunt. Yeah. And so I called the team together and I said, we got to shut this thing down. I mean, it's gut wrenching. I had everything in it, uh, everything in it. And uh, I paid all the bills and I, you know, I made the last payroll. And I had been doing without for a long time. And I literally turned the lights off and locked the door myself in that business, and um, it, it hurt. I mean, I was wiped out. I was wiped out. But everybody, all my, I thought, man, all my employees got paid, and not one of them said thanks, and not one of them called to follow up. Um, it wasn't that they hated me or anything, but there, and they were, they were legitimately sad that the business didn't work, and they, uh, they tried very hard. But when I was young, I remember thinking, wow, what what a bunch of ungrateful SOBs. But then I, I came to realize that they weren't because, as you just said, their part of the bargain was to be an employee and they had their families to take care of. Their obligation to me was to do their work and my obligation to them was to pay them. The obligation I had as a, as a founder and an entrepreneur was vastly different. Than what their obligations were, and so why you know who gets who has a job and draws a paycheck and then calls their boss up and says, "Hey, it's the fifteenth, and I got paid today. I just want to say thanks." (laughs) You don't do that,
1: right? And it's it's
0: expected, one hundred percent. And it's easy as a as a founder and an entrepreneur, and I'm sure your dad and his partners and your family you know, they're thinking, wow, I'm like, I'm going to the wall here for these guys and they don't even know it. So, you you know, there's some thankless moments in it. Um, And those are, those are some of the uh, extra spicy parts of being a founder that I've, that, that, you know, aren't so, aren't so common to get talked about. Uh, But my employees, by the way, just to conclude that story, they were completely correct in their behavior. Um, But it was still hard to, it was hard for me to process that.
1: How long did it take you to kind of get that perspective shift? I'm still working on it. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is, this is, uh, for me, for me, it's a never ending journey to sort of learn and reassess and kind of do this out of body experience where, and that's why I spend my time in the morning and I think about things and I'm like, okay, well, If I'm them, how does this look? You know, if I'm a, if I'm a customer, how would I feel about this? If I'm an employee, how would I feel about
1: this? I guess some lessons. So it never ends. Yeah. Some lessons I feel like you learn and then you're, you're better for it. And other lessons, they just keep showing up and you got to greet them like old friends. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's
0: old friends, friends. I might old, I get friends. I don't know. (laughs) Some of the lessons that keep showing up, they aren't necessarily (laughs) friends, but but it is, uh, it is true. You'll start to see some patterns. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to think yeah. outside of the box or just accept things for what they are.
1: It's part of being human. And let's talk about some of the fun stuff humans can do, especially on two wheels. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You ride motorcycles. That's so cool. The first motorcyclist that I've had on the show. Tell me, what's your, what's your journey on motorcycling been like?
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, I want to hear more about what you do. i've I've done a, I've done a lot of crazy things on bikes. Um, I'm not a, um, and you're aware with aware of this. I'm sure maybe some of your listeners aren't. Um, I'm not a brand specific guy, right? Mm. So they're they're like Harley guys, yeah, only Harley guys, and they very stereotype. yeah, the
1: yeah, brand but, you stick with that yeah. tends to stereotype you. Yeah, I know. Yeah,
0: so. Um, when I was younger, I, I just rode whatever junk I could, you know, buy and build and, and fix up. The very first legit motorcycle I bought uh was was in, it was literally a basket case. I love to build things. I'm a mechanic too, or I try to be a mechanic. And uh this motorcycle, the guy had I never understood why, but it was a, a Yamaha a 350, uh, an old single single cylinder thumper. Um, and he had taken it completely apart. Why, I don't know, but he took it completely apart, and he couldn't get it back together again. Now, this was pre-internet, so there were no YouTube yeah. videos or anything.
1: He had to read he, the had
0: like, he had like 600 parts, and he's like, holy shit. I, I paid him 50 bucks to carry it out of his garage. I paid him 50 bucks. And so I, I took it back to uh, the farm, and my dad looked at it, and he said, what is all this junk? And I'm like, I think there's a motorcycle in here. So we put it together, um, I think I traded that one off. Uh, I rode enduro for a while. Hmm. Um, in the last 10 years, I rode, I rode old man motocross and finally, you know, wiped out bad enough on the track and took six months of rehab. So I don't get, I don't get wow. on the motocross track anymore. I was on KTMs, but I don't, you know, I don't.
1: motocross is pretty intense. I did, uh, one, one wow. lesson in the dirt and let me tell you. Like four hours, I think it was like an intermediate dirt biking course. And I was such a better street ride. Like, I went home, got on my street bike because I I learned on a street bike. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, I felt comfortable when the dirt is as shifty as it is. It's constantly like moving, doing its own thing. When you get on the pavement, you're like, oh, traction is so rare for bikes in the first place. So, like, when you're on the (laughs) pavement, you're like, wow, I am never toppling over after the dirt
0: yeah yeah it's the other thing on the other thing on on riding in dirt is um you know my coaches used to say we have to go slow to learn to go fast so you you slow you slow everything down you you're know, you not rushed like you are on the on the road i never did any track riding but i do a lot of street riding uh, I, I am a harley guy i ride two up with my wife we go all over the united states Um uh, that I sort of fit the stereotype uh, for that.
1: But Is it on, the one on of the big touring, touring ones? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Nice. And, you know, it's a big uh, road glide ultra, uh, and it's great. I mean, love it. Uh, my longest, my longest ride was about just under seven thousand miles. I don't know. Wow. It took me, wow. I don't know, three or four, three and a half weeks to get around the loop in the U.S. People from the office are like, are you ever coming back? am like, yeah, I'm sure, I think. <laughs> I went back. Uh, but you're right on the dirt bike stuff. Uh, the other thing about dirt bikes is, those guys, I was never good, probably because I couldn't just get it out of my head. I overthought it. Um, but the guys that are good, man, they, they just pin it. They don't even think about it. That dirt's all rutted and gnarly, and they're like, f it man and they hit they dump the clutch and pin the throttle and yeah. just go and you know I, I look like an old lady trying to pick my lane through there and everything else and these guys are smoking me you know i'm just eating dirt um so yeah when you get off when you get out of that and you get on the street your sense of control is much better so um, i noticed one in- i i took i i took a pretty bad beat down on a on an accident on the track and and Ooh. uh my doc still doesn't even want me on the road, but I I I won't go on the dirt track anymore. Yeah. But I, I, I do I love the tour.
1: That's yeah. I'd ha, I'll have to bleep that part out for whenever my mom listens to it, so she doesn't uh, get too worried. <laughs> but yeah, mom, don't
0: worry about it. Nothing. You know, you never break anything when you ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yes. Uh, but one thing, one thing I noticed that was like very different on the dirt was when you're street riding, especially, so I have a ninja and I've, I like street Mm -hmm. bikes, uh, sports bikes, and I do eventually want to go on the tracks. But one thing they tell you is like when you're cornering, you want to like look ahead, look over your shoulder and like kind of go with it. And on the dirt, you want to look straight down in front of you, at least when I was getting taught. And I realized it was kind of different because I wasn't doing racing. It was like just the beginning, like yeah. start my first time on the dirt bike. And I kept looking ahead of me and I would like hit stuff on the dirt because I didn't really, it's not like the pavement where it's just flat. They're yeah. like, no, there's rocks and things that like will mess you up if you're not careful. So uh that was like a, a difference that I, I found like pretty strange at first.
0: Yeah, as far as where you're looking, um if you're if you're picking your way along on like a trail ride or something like that, yeah, you have to be aware of what's what's like right in front of you. But I would never say to look down. And when you're on a road, uh the it's absolutely true that the bike is gonna go where your eyes are pointing. Yeah. And and that takes that takes like a that just takes some practice. But you like if you're going into a left-hand turn, are you left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed. Okay. So Right hand turns are probably actually more awkward for you. It's sort of weird. Our 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 bodies have a preference yeah. to a turn stop turn type. Um, but you want to you want to get your eyes to where you want to be three hundred meters down the road and get around that turn. And the, the bike will follow. It's yeah, it's a crazy thing. But target fixation is a, a real idea. thing.
1: Yeah, target fixation is yeah, target a, a fixation. scary thing.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And so, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. What um, what are you riding right now
1: it's a ninja 400 and i have started about a year ago so i'm getting i'm getting to that point where it's like comfortable and i've i've already kind of started looking at new bikes i'm not like in a buying mode it's not gonna happen you know probably within another six months at least like I, i just don't have the need to buy a new bike i'm really happy but at the same time it's like i've the 400 feels good, but I know I can kind of challenge myself, but I think I want to go to a dual sport and try a little bit of something that's street and dirt and maybe get a little bit better there. Just because I really like, I I can say in those like four hours on the dirt taught me way more than I like ever thought to learn. Um, So yeah, just curious on how that goes.
0: Try to try to get a track day uh, with your ninja, find a track that's got an instructor that'll, You know put you on a closed track and and give you some road instructions or even some track instruction on that you'll be a monster on it once you once you get done with it that's a great Um, tip it's a good investment um you know they'll they'll really dial you in on lean and lean angle and you know, obstacle avoidance, the, you, you, the thing on a motorcycle is you've always got to be watching for everybody else. All right. Yeah. You you, You pay for, you pay
1: for their mistakes. It's,
0: it's bad. That's your biggest, no doubt. Your biggest threat is always the other moron, you know, in the minivan or in the beat up truck or whatever. Uh, But try to get, try to get a track day or two Yeah. uh, and your, your skills will, will just jump way up. Some of my buddies that ride on the track, you know, they're pretty hardcore hobby track riders. I mean, they rave some track. And their uh their street skills are insane. I mean, they're just insanely yeah, good riders off
1: the track. The other thing about the track is like I just want to know what she can do. I want to know like full of I wanna know what that do. bike can do.
0: <laughs> of course she do. One of my friends, I don't think uh Phil rides anymore at all. Um but he was a pretty serious track rider. And the more he rode on the track and had track weekends and that kind of stuff, the more the more serious he got. And I think he was running 600cc bikes. I think he, uh, I think he ran Hondas. Um, but he spent so much time on the track that he quit riding on the street. And it, huh. and I said, wait, you don't ride on the street? And he's like, are you kidding? The street's full of idiots. He goes, well, at least on the track, I'm racing with other yeah. guys that I know what they're doing. He goes, it's predictable. The street too, too crazy.
1: And then it's like oh, the adjustments you have to make on your bike. Like if he's constantly going, you have to like tape everything up, make sure the like change the tires and everything. But yeah, yeah, that's so true. That's um another guest I had who's actually the founder of the company I work for now. He, his hobby is he's a race car driver. And he said, I trust those drivers way more than I'll ever trust someone on the freeway. <laughs> Cause at least I know they're not on their phone. And, like, they've been trained. They know how to turn.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, watch watch an F1 race. At, at watch the F1 race this weekend. I mean, these guys are going around a turn at 125 miles an hour. Insane. And they're literally wheel to wheel. And they're not freaking out about it. I mean, they're fighting for position because they know the other guys as good as they are. And, you know, I think that the it's interesting that you're, the guy you just mentioned is a racer. I think one of the things that entrepreneurs need to do to be able to manage stress is you have to find some other obsessive, compulsive thing yeah. beside work uh to sort of dump your energy into. So yeah. for me, you know, it was motorcycles and the track, no matter what was going on in the business. When I rolled that thing off a truck and, and fired it up and got on the dirt, um, I was 110% focused on that right there. I wasn't, you know, walking around grumbling about business or worried about making payroll or all that stuff, even if it needed to be worried about, you've got to give yourself a mental break. And I think most, again, most entrepreneurs that I know um, do well when they have some passion outside of work that they can burn off some energy and get some cycle time. So,
1: I thank you for saying that because that – thought right there is the sole reason i started this podcast was talking to that founder and being like wow this is you do something so cool outside of work but at the same time it keeps you in that job like it keeps he's one of the most level-headed people i know and he said that you could have so much going on in your life but the second that the the flag goes down you're in that race and that's what you're doing that you were not thinking about anything else and he so we're in cybersecurity, and he says when he's dealing with you know, high stress cybersecurity events. That kind of he gets in that same mind state. The fact that he knows yeah. what's happening and how to deal with these high pressure situations and kind of calm himself down has kind of like helped him in the the business world as well. So I think that yeah, that is so cool. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I, I well, you're you're welcome. I, I, I just found that over the years if i obsess about work 100% of the time um i'm much less effective and so you need you need that you need that break time and i think you also need to understand that there's some higher purpose beyond you that you can't control now for some people that's their religion or their faith For other people that's spiritual and kind of like meditation or whatever um, but I think understanding that you can't control everything. Uh, in fact, you probably can't control much of anything if you get right down to it. Uh, and that you take some time on a regular basis, like weekly at least, um, to be just obsessed about something that's only personally gratifying to you. Bake a cake, uh, build a birdhouse, race a motorcycle, build a stock car, doesn't matter. But step away from your work and the pursuit you have as an entrepreneur. Uh, it's not going to go away. You're not going to be a failure if you you take an afternoon and you know go coach the you know junior high football team, which one of my yeah. executives does. Um, it'll make you better. It'll make you a better entrepreneur, and probably a better person too, along the way.
1: Yeah, and enjoying yourself with it is so important. I noticed that with another one of my hobbies with chess. I it's something I love doing. And I genuinely enjoy it, but I haven't been doing very well lately. I'll be honest, and it's yes. been so frustrating. Like I play games to try and win to erase all the the like the previous few losses I had, and then it's just like this cycle. And then someone was like, "You do this as a hobby to enjoy yourself. You're not going to be a, a competitive chess player. <laughs> like, why are you doing it in a competitive way right now? Why shouldn't shouldn't you just be enjoying the game?" And that's when I was like. Similar to the work, like all right, I gotta take a take a take a step back from this hobby and just get back to it when I do it for fun instead of for you know self-angerment.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe you can do a maybe you can do a survey here of entrepreneurs and their hobbies since you like to talk to people about that. Uh, I bet that probably eighty percent or more of them, the hobby is some sort of competitive thing. I'm going to oh, race. I'm going to win a game. I'm yeah. going. I'm going. You know. So it's it's sort of like rechanneling the same sort of idiosyncratic behavior. but yeah. it's, Now it's like, yeah, I race. And what's really funny is that no matter how silly the hobby might be, frisbee golf. Apologies to anyone who's a frisbee golf player. <laughs> um, the entrepreneurs that play it want to be on the intergalactic world tournament to win yeah. kind of thing. They're deep, they're not just going to go out and throw deep it Deep down, they know. The
1: they deep down they're like if i wasn't an entrepreneur i'd be a world champion at that already that's how they're (laughs) thinking
0: that's exactly right that's exactly right i think the personality types (laughs) match up
1: so all right well we're we're all legends in our own mind right exactly carlos thank you very much for coming on this has been a, a great conversation i've learned a lot i like you have so much great insight and I know at the beginning we were you were saying uh, I hope I can provide value. You did that 10 times over. Thank you very much for for everything.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. It was a uh, it was a fun interview. You you have great questions and uh if you or anyone else has questions I'm happy to follow up on them. So uh,
1: sounds good. You know,
0: let me know how it goes.
1: Okay. Yeah. I appreciate it. And now I just have like a a quick, a few quick questions. We can, we can plug your stuff, tell people where to find you and be on our way. So first of all, what kind of music do you listen to? Uh, Wow. I listen to just about everything.
0: It's easier to say the things that I don't, I've, I never quite got into hip hop. I don't get it. And, uh, uh, reggaeton. You know, I just all the time in thing. Central it seems, America,
1: it's still not uh yeah, but uh, it seems pretty repetitive beats. to me. Yeah. It
0: seems pretty repetitive to me. Um, but I really like Pitbull though, just because of the messages that he has. And such positive messaging that guy carries yeah. in his, his stuff. But I listen to just about anything. Country West. He's Western, another, old he's another rock, slept on all kinds of crazy stuff.
1: Pitbull's a slept on but very good entrepreneur. He he's got a good way oh. of moving about things. <sighs>
0: I would drink a beer with that guy. anytime. I would love to have, I'd love to get to know that guy for sure. Okay. Anyhow, music all over the map.
1: What about any shows or movies?
0: Um, I don't watch a lot of television, although uh, my wife and I had a lot of fun watching the Mandalorian
1: uh, series.
0: And, um, I don't know about this current season, but I really like the first season and maybe the second season on uh, "For All Mankind." Sort of a space tech junkie, and since I grew up during the Apollo missions and stuff, yeah. it was uh, it was it was pretty cool for me.
1: I haven't I haven't heard that, but I'll I'll look into it. Uh, and are yeah, there it's any on books? Apple TV? Apple TV. Oh, they've books. been doing a great job lately.
0: Yeah, I read a lot. I read a lot. Uh, so about a third of the books that I read are either histories or, or biographies. I try to read at least one or two business books, uh, a month. The, bi- the book that I recommend right now is build by Tony Fidel.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, Tony Fidel amongst other things was the product lead for the iPod and the iPhone. Oh, uh, nice. then he started nest nest computer. He sold it to, uh, to Google for two and a half billion dollars. Um, great approach to getting, he's just a great entrepreneur. So, build by Tony Fidel. Uh, that's, yeah, I'll throw it. it in the show yeah. notes.
1: Anyone else want to check it out as well? I definitely want to look into that. And yeah. finally, where can people find you?
0: um Well, my email is carlos at codexitos.com. Put it in the show notes. That's fine. uh Because I move around so much and travel internationally, I know email is old school, but it's kind of the most reliable way to yeah. get a note to me. So if somebody shoots me a note, says, Hey, I listen to you on the podcast then I've got a question or I think you're a, a boob or whatever, then that's fine. <laughs> uh, and, link, and LinkedIn. Uh, the only thing I'd say is if you send me a connection request on LinkedIn, again, kind of reference the show so that I know that you're coming at me and you're not trying to sell me a car lease or, you okay. know, uh, it, a uh, hundred valuable outsource sales lead or something like that. Uh, LinkedIn, my LinkedIn <laughs> gets kind of junk, kind of gets junked up with, uh, you know, stuff that people should have thought through a little better before they sent it out. But, but if you put a, a connection note in there and say, "Hey, I want to connect," uh, I'll do it. I mean, I love to meet people and love to hear their story. Everyone's interesting.
1: Sweet. Thank you very much for coming on. It was a pleasure.
0: You, you bet.
1: All right, we'll make it the best day of your life.